or from their master's table. And Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me add a a good morning to you as well. My name is is Tim, and I have the pleasure of serving as one of the pastors here on staff. So glad that you're with us this morning as we continue uh, the the look at Jesus' life through the gospel of of Matthew. And as we open God's word and hear and listen to it this morning, let let me pray and ask for God's, God's help. Let's pray. Father God, the earth is yours and everything in it, including all of us in this room. And yet the Psalms tell us the only person who can actually live in your presence is the person who has clean hands and a pure heart and who does not lift up their soul to anything else but you. And so as we open your word this morning, God, give us ears to hear that you would wash our hands, purify our hearts, and direct our gaze to you and to you alone, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's a question that that every religion has to give an answer to. It's a fundamental question. You can't do anything else until you you ask this question and and deal with it. That how do you approach God? That when you you approach God, what's going to happen? In Christianity, we, we believe that Jesus was God become flesh, which means that you can sort of read these gospel stories and hear accounts of people who have approached Jesus and what he did to them. And and so in some ways, we Christianity can answer that question with far more clarity than maybe any other faith. We've seen what God does when people walk up to him. And and yet also at the same time, much of what we read in the gospels isn't always helpful because Jesus seems to respond in totally different ways depending on the circumstance or who it is that's approaching to him. Right? You think about moments in, in his life where little kids approached Jesus and he, he welcomed them and he played with them and he spent time with them while the adults around sort of furrowed their brows and tried to get the kids away from Jesus. And Jesus rebuked the adults and played with the kids. And there's other moments when religious people, people like me, approach Jesus and he calls them snakes and hypocrites. That what would happen to you if you approached Jesus? How do you approach God? Of all the moments in all the Gospels of how Jesus responds to people when they approach him, this is by far the most fascinating. That that a woman who is, is terrified for her child who's in danger approaches Jesus for help, and Jesus tells her he's not going to help. In fact, he he actually reproaches her with a mild insult. That it's not just that Jesus turns away a woman with a child in pain. He actually insults her in the process. That what is he doing here? That if you're going to approach Jesus, there there are two questions you have to answer. That if if you're a Christian, these are two questions you have to keep asking throughout your entire Christian life. They, They don't go away. From you, And if, if you're not a Christian, these are, are two questions you have to answer before you can enter the faith. Before the, the door in, before you can have faith, you have to, to wrestle with these two questions. That can you receive his reproach and can you trust his mercy? 
Those two questions are at the heart of this text. Can you receive his reproach? Can you trust his mercy? So let's start with the first question. In this passage in Matthew 15, it begins with Jesus trying to get away from crowds going to Tyre and Sidon to get some rest. That Jesus, he spent most of his earthly life, his earthly ministry in Jewish provinces and his ministry was going really well. And so if you've been paying attention over the last few weeks as we've been preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, you've noticed there have been a few times Jesus tried to get away from people and people keep finding him and, and, and large crowds keep gathering around him even when he tries to escape them to get some rest. And so in this text, he's left Jewish provinces. He's gotten a long way away from folks to try to get some rest from the crowds, and so he's gone to these two cities, to Tyre and, and Sidon. So take a look at, at this map to get a sense of the geography of where Jesus is. The green area, that's, that's Jewish provinces. And then if you notice what, where the blue is, that's the Mediterranean Sea, the Tyre and Sidon, those cities. That's where Jesus has gone to get, get some rest. So he's, he's traveled a long way to the Mediterranean Sea, to, to the beach, which I think is just worth pausing for a moment that, uh, that if you feel like you need a, a beach vacation, Jesus did it. It's biblical, right? Beach vacations, we should follow after Jesus' own example from time to time. That's what he's doing here. He's left where people know, know him. He's gone to where people don't to get rest, but it doesn't work. That this woman hears Jesus has come to her region and she goes to the house where he was staying. And we're not told much about this woman, only two things. That her daughter's in, in trouble, she's oppressed by a demon, she's in danger. And that secondly, she's a Canaanite. The Canaanites were, were neighbors to the Jewish people, which meant she would have been aware of Jewish customs and, and teachings. And that's clear when she refers to Jesus as the son of David. That, that was sort of a, a Jewish theological title for the, the Messiah. So she understands who Jesus is, what he's claiming to be. And so the fact that she knows a little bit of Jewish theology would also mean she knows that she is breaking every social custom of the day by what she's doing with Jesus here. She's the wrong gender. That she, just, she walks into Jesus' house, the house where he's staying, and begins to address a male Jewish rabbi. You didn't do that in this day. She's the wrong religion. As a Canaanite, she worshiped another god, so she has no religious claim on Jesus, that as a Canaanite, she's the wrong race. The Canaanites and Jewish people were bitter enemies with one another. So she's the wrong race. She's the wrong gender. She's the wrong religion. And yet she walks right into where Jesus is saying. She doesn't care about any of those customs, about any of those expectations. She crosses every barrier and comes to Jesus begging and crying for his help. Which shouldn't surprise us. She's a parent with a child in trouble. And there are no social customs, no social rules that a parent would not break if they thought they could help a child who is need, in need. That no one would ever think of getting in between a mother and her hurting child. And yet that's just where Jesus is in this moment. Between a mother and her desperate daughter. And yet he's silent in the face of her cries for help. Did you hear that in verse 23? But he did not answer her a word. Why not? I was thinking through that question this week, right? Maybe, maybe he's just surprised that this woman has crossed so many barriers. He's, she's suddenly in his face and he, he just doesn't know what to do. Or I think more likely maybe he's just tired. 
Right, he's trying to get some rest, and he can't get rest anywhere he goes. Just this past week, my wife and I, we were dri- driving back from Indiana with our three kids. It was about a nine-hour trip, and there was a moment two-thirds of the way home where, where two of our three kids were just screaming their heads off at us, and Missy and I just looked at each other. We didn't have the energy to respond in that moment. Maybe Jesus is there. He's just tired. He, doesn't, he, can't, he can't interact in the moment. Though whatever it is, he, his disciples come to him basically saying, Jesus, you have to do something. And it's clear the disciples expect Jesus to help her because Jesus is going to explain to the disciples why he's not going to help her. How he responds to them is, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. My guess is this response is troubling to to all of us in this room. Why won't Jesus help her? What, What is he saying here? And you have to remember that Jesus lived in a day when there was no Twitter, there was no internet, travel was very expensive and very inefficient, that Jesus never went to Greece or to Rome or to the most influential uh, cities of his day. And so what he's saying here is, is, disciples, I, I have one mission, and that is to take the kingdom of God to the nation of Israel. That's my job. She is not a part of my mission. My mission's not finished yet. And so that was Jesus' plan all along. And then once his mission was complete, once the kingdom of God was announced among Israel, he had done everything he had claimed he was going to do. Then Jesus sent his disciples to all the world to proclaim the kingdom of God. Jesus, one man, couldn't go into all the world and proclaim his gospel. That's why he started a church. And so Jesus, he's told his disciples, she's not a part of my mission. She's not a part of my plan. I'm not going to help her. She obviously hears him, but she doesn't leave. She actually gets closer to him. We're told she she goes and she kneels right in front of him. Lord, help me. And that's when Jesus reproaches her. I would say mildly insults her. I don't think the insult is as, as bad as it appears on first blush to us, but you can't get around the fact Jesus is challenging her in this moment. And he does, through, does so by, by telling her a short parable um, around a meal. He says to her, when, it, when it's time to eat, when there's a meal, the children, they eat at the table. And when the children have finished the meal, then what's left over goes to the dogs. And for Jesus to invoke a dog in this parable, it was not a compliment to this woman. This culture wasn't a, a, a dog-loving culture. The word for dog was often a, a, a word used as an insult. The Jewish people often referred to non-Jewish people, especially Canaanites, as, as dogs. Right? This culture, it didn't have commercials with pictures of sad-looking dogs lying half dead while Sarah McLaughlin saying, I will remember you over it. Right? That's, not, that's not this culture. And so, listen, let's all be shocked in this moment. Jesus is mildly insulting a woman who has come to him desperate for his health. Help. And he tells her a parable, saying, listen, Israel, they're the children. They have to eat. My mission is to them. And then when, when my mission is complete to them, then you can have what's left. It's a parable, but it's also not just a parable, because Jesus doesn't use the typical word for dog here, the, the word that's typically an insult. He actually substitutes a different word. Instead of using the normal word for dog, he uses the word that, that refers to a household pet. It's actually more of, of a word that referred to a little dog, more like a, a puppy. And so Jesus is saying to her that 
Listen, there's an order to things. That I, I, my mission as a single person is to the nation of Israel. And once the children have eaten, once my mission to them is complete, then the puppies can come to the table and eat. He's saying to her, I've come to Tyre and Sidon for rest, not for you. Now is not your time. But in this parable, Jesus is saying to this woman, I don't owe you this. And we all bristle in response. That if Jesus said that to you, how, how would you respond? I'd get offended. I'm mean, not only about you, but I would get instantly offended because I get offended about far less things than people telling me parables where I'm, I'm confer- compared somewhat to a, a, a dog. Now, just this past week, I was profiled for the first time as a, as a Kansan. Um, I've had people who are from here. I'm from Indiana originally, uh, and, and I've had people from here tell me that if, if you tell people you're from Kansas City, you kind of get one response. If you tell people you're from Kansas, you get a very different response. And so for the first time, that happened to me where I was at the rental car counter in Indiana, and it was a suburb of Indianapolis, and I'm giving the guy my address, and he's like, what state? And I say, Kansas, and he just stops. He's like, what, what's it like living out there? <laughs> and I actually had no idea what he was asking me. It's like... And I just kind of looked at him. He's like, Kansas, what's that like? And, and then I realized he just assumed that I had like walked out of a wheat field and hadn't seen people for days and was like, what are these glowing bulbs of light? I don't know. What are these things? And, and he, just, he just has no clue for, for what it means to, to live in, in Kansas. And, and I was offended. Right? I'm like, well, and I told him, like, it's a suburb just like Kansas City. He's like, oh, so it's like living around here. And I'm like, yeah, it's like living around here. In fact, it's better than living around here, right? <laughs> and I was just, I was offended because... Right, I, have, I have my dignity, I have my rights. And, th- and that is how so much of our culture operates. We are, we are a culture of rights, which means we, are, we think we're owed a certain level of respect, dignity, rights, expectations with every encounter. And Jesus to this woman says, I don't owe you any of that. And if we were to go in front of Jesus... He could potentially say the same thing to every one of us. So how would you respond? Could you receive his reproach? Now, we live in a rights-based culture, which means we have a hard time assessing anything without saying, I'm owed this. This, this is my right. And I would say most people approach God like that. The religiously conservative people tend to do this, that they tend to keep God's commands so that then they think God owes them certain things, owes them a good life because they're good people. That I would say many of us in this room, we operate like this. We try to approach God on the basis of our goodness. And if, we're, we're, if things are going well, if we feel like we're keeping the rules well, then we pray hard. We, we expect God to move in our lives. We expect certain things of God because we are living the life we're supposed to live. Right? If we are good, then God owes it to us to listen or more religiously liberal or even irreligious people would assume that God just owes us his mercy, his love, a certain level of, of dignity because that's his job. Right? Why wouldn't God love me and do what I ask him to? They, they could never imagine that there's something so fatally wrong with all of us that God actually doesn't owe us anything. They could never imagine a God like Jesus who says to this woman who comes to him desperate and in help, looking for help, they can never imagine a God responding how Jesus responds here, which is, I, I don't owe you this. And yet this woman rejects both of those approaches to God. 
She's very unlike our culture. She rejects the idea that the religious people tend to do, which is, I, I've lived a good, good enough life. God, you owe me. You owe me a good life. And they, he, she certainly rejects the irreligious perspectives, which is, I, I have my rights. God, you owe me your mercy. You owe me your love. And if either one of those groups heard Jesus say this, they would have walked away from him in disgust and offense. But she doesn't. Why not? Look how she responds to Jesus telling her this short parable. Verse 27, she says, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. But do you see what she's doing in, in this moment? She is identifying as a dog. She's saying, that's true, Jesus, you're, you're right. But even the, even the puppies get to eat from the crumbs that fall from the table. Even the puppies don't have to wait for theirs. But she's not offended. She doesn't walk away offended at what Jesus said to him. She receives his reproach. And I would ask, can you? Because he will say similar things to you if you approach him. And I realize this sounds devastating, but it wasn't devastating to this woman because she doesn't have the problems that you and I have. She didn't think that she's living a good enough life. Therefore, Jesus owes her. And she didn't walk around with the sense that God owes everybody his mercy and we're all essentially good. And why wouldn't God love us? She walks, away with, walks around with neither of those perspectives and she was liberated. It meant that when Jesus reproached her, she didn't walk away in disgust, she got closer. It meant even when Jesus pushed against her, she got closer to him. And that's the only way you can pray. That's the only way you can approach Jesus. Is that sort of boldness with that sort of humility, right? Where she's approaching Jesus saying, I'm not here on the basis of my goodness. I'm here on the basis of your goodness. I'm not here because I think you owe me. In fact, I know you don't owe me anything, but I'm here for what I'm not owed. And I'm going to wait until you give it. But she can bear his reproach. She can identify as a dog because she trusts Jesus' mercy. And so that, that's the second question. Do you trust Jesus' mercy? Because that's the only way you'd, you'd be able to bear his reproach. And what Jesus said to this woman, it was a reproach. He was challenging her, but he was also making an offer to her in the midst of the challenge. That, that, that she knows Jesus doesn't owe her anything. She acknowledges that, but she doesn't care. She says, I'll wait for my crumbs. <laughs> Which is incredible boldness. Jesus just said, I'm not going to help you. And she's, her response is, I don't care. I'm going to wait anyway. Let him Imagine the type of boldness that, that, that would take. The, the closest parallel I can think of is it was, I was growing up as, um, uh, as a kid. My grandma Spanberg made the best desserts in the world. Her spice cake was the best thing I've ever eaten in my life. Best pies, German chocolate cake. I mean, she, if she made it, it was the best. But she had a very strict rule at the house, which was you did not get to dessert unless you ate everything on your dinner table. Everything on the dinner plate got ate. And the problem with that was she often put things on your dinner plate that you very much didn't want to eat as a child. Right, she, they, my, my grandpa would go hunting in Wyoming, so there'd be uh, you know, all kinds of exotic meats like antelope or elk on the plate, which for a child was just frightening. Um, and from time to time, liver made its way onto the plate. I mean, it's just you had to get through the dinner plate to get to dessert. And a few times as a kid, I'd, I tried to bypass the, that, that order and ask my grandma, can I have dessert now? And her response was very clear. These are the rules. And, and she'd be so bold in her response, it would give me the fear to ask a second time, right? Because I'd fear if I asked a second time, that might put the spice cake in jeopardy, and we just need to keep the peace, and I just got to get through this to get to dessert. 
Right? Imagine the boldness it would take a grandchild to ask his grandmother, give me dessert now. Well, multiply that times a thousand. And, and this woman has walked up to the God of the universe and said, I want mine now. And Jesus says, no, it's not your time. So she gets closer. And Jesus says, no, again. No, it's not your time. So she gets even bolder and says, even puppies catch crumbs that fall from the table. Just, just let me catch a crumb, Jesus. You owe me nothing, but I'm going to wait until you give me the best that you have. But Jesus, he's astonished at this response in the Gospel of Mark in this story. We're told almost, he, he gasped and just blurted out, what an answer. That Matthew, for Matthew, a huge theme throughout his gospel is faith. And so he focuses in on what Jesus says about her faith, which is how great is your faith? And then we're told her daughter was healed that instant. But she get her, the crumbs fell from the table. And when I read this story, I'm left with, with this question of how do, you get, how do you get both the humility and the boldness to approach Jesus like this? Right? How do you have the humility to come before him and acknowledge that you're, that you're a dog and he doesn't owe you anything? And in the next breath, make the bold demand that you eat from his table. How do you have both? And the reality is very few people approach God like this. That in our culture, it's especially hard. That I'm guessing many of us are still struggling with the fact that Jesus twice said he's not going to help her. That he told this parable that was mildly insulting to her, that we're, you're struggling with that. And that is because we are this rights-based culture that, that thinks we are owed certain things, especially when it comes to God, that there are certain things God owes you. And if you approach God like that, I promise you, you will never meet his liberating mercy. You won't. But if you try to approach him on the basis of your own goodness, if you try to approach him in, in the, through the means of religion, that if you live a good enough life, then God owes you certain blessings. Well, what happens when you have a bad week? What happens when you're caught in sin? Then you can't come. You, the, moment God, the moment Jesus reproaches you, you have to leave. You have to go away because you know you're a dog and you're not welcome at his table. Or even worse, if you, you actually you think you are good enough to approach God. And you think that God does owe you because you are living up. And then you're just prideful and insufferable. You're arrogant. And you'll probably look down on people who you think aren't living up to your standards. But don't approach God on the basis of your goodness. Or if you think God owes you his mercy because he owes everybody his mercy, then that's just what he should do. Then I would just ask, what, what does it cost your God for him to show you mercy? Right, that's still approaching God on the basis of your goodness. You're, you're assuming that there's a certain level of goodness to yourself that God owes you his mercy, his love. That everyone's basically good and God should basically receive them. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying to this woman, I don't owe you anything. That's, that is a message at the heart of the Christian religion, that God does not owe us anything. And the reality is if you come to God ex expecting his mercy, expecting him to owe you a certain level of respect, dignity, whatever it is, then you'll never understand how deep his mercy actually goes, how much it actually costs him to share his mercy with you. And yet that leaves a huge question for us because if God doesn't owe us anything, if we can't approach God and say, God, you owe us your love or I've been good enough, you have to bless me. If we can't approach God 
like that, it means we have to trust his mercy all the more. And that's the question is, why should we trust his mercy? How can we know that we can trust his mercy, that the God who doesn't owe us anything will invite us to his table? And the answer to that for me has to go, we have to go to the cross, right? Where Jesus on the cross is he's dying for our sins. He quotes from Psalm 22, and we've talked about this before, but, but the reason he quotes from Psalm 22, the reason he, he cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is he was pointing all of us to go to Psalm 22 saying, that's me, that's my experience. And if you read the whole of Psalm 22, there's this moment where the psalmist cries out as he's being executed, for dogs have encompassed me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. The psalmist talks of being cast out in the midst of wild dogs who surround him to kill him. And what that psalm tells us, the story that that psalm tells us, that Jesus, the true son, right, the, the one who really had the right to eat from God's, the Father's table, he was removed from the table and taken out amongst the dogs who encircled him and crucified him so that you and I could be children seated at the table. And that's why you and I, when we approach Jesus, we have to approach him with humility because the only reason we can approach is because he left the table for us. He, he went out amongst the dogs for us. You cannot approach him in pride or in your own goodness because of what he had to do to get you to the table. And yet you can also approach him with boldness because he went willingly. He didn't refuse us his crumbs at the table, right? He doesn't refuse this woman his mercy here, but he gives freely. He leaves the place of his father to go out amongst the dogs for us, for you, for me. So that, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, so that you and I, we wouldn't just be dogs begging for crumbs at the table, but in Ephesians 1, we're told that for those who put their faith in Christ, that in love, God predestined us for adoptions as sons, as daughters through Jesus Christ. That we, the dogs, get to become the child at his table. Because God's only child, his only son, was willing to become dogs for us, a dog for us. And that's the gospel message, right? That's the heart of what everything Christianity says, which is why we can approach God with this humility and with this boldness. And if this is true, right, if Jesus became a dog for us, that we could have a seat at the table, then just three quick points of application that I would encourage us to live into as Christians, that this calls us to. The first, we, we should reach out across barriers, Right, Jesus in this moment is crossing every racial, social, gender barrier that was imaginable in his day. And I'm not just talking about crossing barriers as, as a liberal sort of tolerance. Because the gospel says, it says far more than that. What the gospel says is that, that I am a dog and that God owes me nothing. And when you see that, when you take that in, that becomes central to your identity. It melts away any sense of self-righteousness. You can't look at other groups of people, at other, at other races, classes, people in your family you dislike. You can't look at anyone and look down upon them because you look at yourself first as someone who had to, to, to make the Son of God become a dog to get you to the table. All right, in this story, Jesus, he's breaking down every barrier. And so you and I, we should be committed to that work of crossing lines because the gospel melts away our self-righteousness. Right? Once you see Jesus becoming a dog for you, you can't look down on anyone, ever, for any reason. So reach across barriers, one. Second, approach Jesus with caution. 
Right, on the face of the things, if, if you're to put the two questions we're asking this morning to, to our culture, right, can you trust his mercy and, and can you receive his reproach? My guess is, is most of us look at God, we think of, of God as merciful. And yet the first question is, is really where we struggle. This idea that Jesus pushed back against this woman, initially refusing to help her. And yet, friends, when, when Jesus talked about what it meant to follow him, one of the, the go-to metaphors he used was death. He says, if you want to follow me, pick up your cross. If you, want to, if you want to save your life, you have to lose it. But the Jesus' his central metaphor to discipleship was death, which means if you want to follow him, you have to die. Your rights have to go away. Your dignity has to go away. But if you think Jesus is safe, you're wrong. He is out to end you as you know you. And so approach with caution. This woman did, and, and so when Jesus handled her a little roughly, when he pushed back against her, she took it. She knew Jesus wasn't safe. She knew Jesus was going to push back into her core identity. And yet, because she had this fierce trust in his mercy, she received it. So one, as Christians, we should reach out across barriers. Two, we should, we, we, if you're going to approach Jesus, you have to approach him with caution. He, he may handle you roughly. But thirdly, we pray with boldness. The Christian prayer, psalm prayer, the way we pray as Christians is very different than every other religion, faith, background. Because we don't approach God on the basis of what we think we are owed. We don't approach God on the basis of our goodness, on the basis of the fact we've kept the rules. We approach God on the basis of his mercy, his goodness. And so I, I would just ask, do your prayers reflect the kind of boldness that this Canaanite woman shows here? Do you, do you ask for big things? Do you expect God to move in your life because of his great mercy? So when do you pray for bold things, but also when you don't receive those things... Does that push you farther away or does it push you closer to him? It's so often when God says no to things we ask, it's easy to become angry or disillusioned or walk further away, but she doesn't. She gets closer. Every time he says no, she gets closer. It's because she doesn't, she's not approaching him like God owes her anything. She's approaching him as the merciful one. And it, it creates a boldness in her to pray with confidence that God is going to move in her life. And so we Christians, we have the most ridiculous prayer. Our prayer is, God, you don't owe me anything, but I want all you have, and I expect all you have. I'm not praying on the basis of my goodness. I'm praying on the basis of your goodness. God, let me, this dog, sit at your table. Right? I'm not here for what I deserve. I'm here for what I don't deserve. That's our prayer as Christians, and so pray with boldness. And, and one of the great examples of, of praying like this is Thomas Cramner, who wrote the Book of Common Prayer. When he was writing a prayer to, for Christians who were going to address the communion table, come to the communion table, he, he drew on this story of the Canaanite woman and wrote this prayer that Christians have been praying for centuries as they approach communion. It says, We do not presume to come to this, your table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table. But you are the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. So let us approach this God now. I would say if you're not a Christian this morning and you're waiting till you feel like you have enough goodness to approach God, that's not how we approach God in Christianity. It's, you don't approach because of your goodness. You approach because of his goodness. 
is if you approached because of your goodness, you'd, you'd either never come or you'd, you'd live in pride. And most of the people, in fact, all of the people who approached Jesus thinking they were good enough, he called hypocrites and snakes, and he sent away. Don't come on the basis of your goodness. And if you're waiting to come, don't wait. Come because of him and his mercy, not your own goodness. And if you're a Christian, you better not be coming thinking that you're, you're coming because of your goodness. You better be coming trusting in his and which means you come boldly, you come confidently, because you're coming for his mercy, not your goodness. So may we all approach Jesus like that. We don't approach Jesus as people who are owed, because we aren't. But we are people who approach because of his mercy, his goodness, his love. And so may we approach as people who do not deserve his crumbs, but demand to sit at his table. Let's pray. God, we come to sing now as people who know you want us at your table and also know we can't sit there without Jesus leaving the table and going out amongst the dogs to, to welcome us in. And so we, we come now humbly as sinners, as dogs, as people who are unworthy of this grace, and yet we also come boldly knowing it was won for us by Jesus, and he welcomes us gladly of his infinite mercy. So we come now and sing to you, our God, in Jesus' name. Amen.